Last week we opened our time in the Word together by recounting the story of a, a man named Ronnie Smith who suffered and was killed at the hands of people who uh, didn't like him or his message over in Libya. He was a Christian. Yesterday, uh, the Ryan Limbaugh family um, buried our dog, Tonto. Yeah, um, and it was a difficult day for us. Uh, today, the Browns are going to be sending Daniel off to college, It'll be the first of their family to, to leave, and it'll be different from now on. Travis and Susan Fleming have traveled down to South Georgia to be with her brother and uh, his wife because they just lost a 20-week-old-in-the-womb uh, baby. Suffering happens in all different kinds of shapes and sizes. And some is little suffering and some is big suffering. But I want to tell you this morning that if you are a believer, all suffering is Christian suffering. You don't relegate it to, oh, well, this is meaningless suffering or this is just general suffering. But if you know Christ and you have Christ in your heart, then it is essentially Christian in nature. And you are to receive it as a Christian and you are to experience it as a Christian and you to are express your worship as a Christian no matter how small or how large the suffering may be. Here are three principles that you can live by and you can take to the bank and if you live by them, you will have gospel success. All right, and the first one that, that he says is he says you need to embrace your suffering as a blessing. Just embrace it. Like take it on. Just as Jesus took on his suffering, you take on your suffering. And he says, listen, if you're zealous for what's good, first of all, you'll often enjoy the favor of the world. Like if you love what's good and you do what's good and you're a blessing to other people, then you're likely going to experience their, their blessing as well. But that's not the main point that he was making. He's saying if you love what's good, all right, and, you, and you, you're zealous for it, then you'll always receive the blessing of God no matter what. So in other words, if you suffer and if people hate you and revile you and despise you, it's okay because in God's eyes you're accepted, in God's eyes you're received, you are loved, and you're ultimately blessed. And so the key principle that he makes in that first section is if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. You are blessed because it's an opportunity for you to preach Christ. It's an opportunity for you to edify and build up the Christians who are around you. It's an opportunity for you to grow in intimacy in your knowledge of Jesus and your relationship with Jesus and to grow in holiness for you to be like Jesus. That's why suffering is a blessing. And so don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled, Peter says. And then he says you need to prepare yourself for witness. All right, prepare yourself witness, prepare your heart, prepare your life, prepare your attitude, prepare your speech, prepare everything about you so that you, when they ask you about the hope that is in you, you will be ready to give a defense for that hope. And then finally, he says, so then prove your witness by your way of life. Prove it. All right. He says, listen, you know, the answer of a good conscience comes from good conduct. All right. So live like Jesus. Live holy, 
love God, love people, lay your life down for others, Peter would say. All right? And so if you look down at your notes, it says people will hurl insults at you. They will slander you. They will do mean things to you. They will ignore you. They will isolate you. They will betray you. They will stab you in the back. And you'll be left asking the question, what did I do that was so bad? Where did I go wrong? And Peter is saying, live in such a way that they're not slandering you because you did something wrong or sinful toward them. Rather, live in such a way that they slander you because you are light. Because they are darkness, they hate the light, and they're doing their very best to extinguish your light from their lives. And so, Peter would say, you don't have to to be terrified. You don't have to fear death because you know just what my brother Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right, that was the message from last week. That's the message of verses 13 to 17. Now, let's launch right into verses 18 to 22. Servants. Oh, oh wrong chapter. <laughs> All right. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were being saved through water. Now you see why we talked about Noah in kids' time. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, there are some few preparatory comments that I, I want to make about uh, this passage. Martin Luther, right, who uh, was the leading reformer of the 16th century, all right, if you can remember, he's the one who nailed the 95 theses up on the church of Wittenberg door and started the Protestant Reformation, all right? Martin Luther is a preeminent biblical scholar, maybe as fine as the world has ever known. This is what he has to say about the passage I just read. This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. End quote. One commentator remarks, among today's interpreters... This passage has the reputation for being the most difficult in the New Testament. It assumes familiarity with images and traditions that are alien to our modern culture. Right? I have had a time this week with this text. And I just want to uh, uh, confess that to you. And I want to give these two principles before we go any further. Because it's very important. The first principle I want to give you um, is that, that this is the reason why we do verse-by-verse verse exposition. All right? This is why it's helpful to the body of Christ, because no preacher would arbitrarily say on a Monday morning, you know what verse I'm going to preach this week? 
You know what, Pastor? It's going to be 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. I want to talk about uh, the antitype which now saves you, baptism. I want to talk about how Jesus went and preached the spirits in prison. All right, no preacher ever said that. But when you preach through books of the Bible, when you take it verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph, it causes us as the body of Christ to study passages we would never study before. So that's principle number one. The second principle is that uh, there are closed-fisted issues, all right, and then there are open-handed issues, all right? Those are things that we need to understand, all right? Closed-fisted issues include things like substitutionary atonement and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all right? Open-handed issues are, when you get to a text like this, where did Jesus go? What did he do when he got there? Who did he preach to? What was it like? All right? So if a group of religious headhunters stormed through the door right now and asked me if, if I believed in the substitutionary death of Jesus and the bodily resurrection, I would say, absolutely I do. All right? And if they wanted to take me away for that or kill me for that, then I would be all in. I would die for that. But if they ask me what I believe about where Jesus went and preached the spirits in prison, all right, I would say, I don't know exactly, all right, and, and, and I'm not going to die on that hill. So what do you say? Um, I just, it's important to know that there's a difference between closed-fisted and open-handed, all right? And so um, that's, that's the point that I, I want to make. Now, some of, the, uh, some of the things that are going on in this text could lead us away from the point of the text. And so on your outline, if you can see, I say, before we go deep in the details, it's crucial that we don't miss Peter's purpose and point. So let's just take a breath for a moment, and let's just say, number one, his purpose is to support his claim that he made in verse 17. He said in verse 17 that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And he's right now saying, listen, I'm going to support that claim. I'm going to show you why it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That's my purpose, all right? The second thing is his point. Let me just go through this point here. Even though Jesus suffered unjustly for doing good, that suffering was not the failure it appeared to be to the watching world. Instead, it was ultimately a victory, over all angels and authorities and powers. Therefore, if you suffer unjustly like Jesus, it doesn't mean you're wrong or unsuccessful or outside the will of God. It means that your suffering is God's will. And not only that, if you suffer unjustly, you need to know that nothing can come up against you that is beyond the power of your crucified, risen, and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the point of the passage. So before we get lost into the ark and in the water and in the baptism and the spirits in prison, let's don't lose that point. All right. So on the back of your page, you'll see that the issues and difficulties in the text include those that are theological, substitution, reconciliation, resurrection, salvation, baptism, supremacy of Christ. You have exegetical issues put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Eight souls were saved through water. An anatype now saves us baptism. And other biblical matters like typology and the meaning of baptism. And there's just simply no way we'll be able to get to all of those passages 
I mean, all of those meanings and hash them all out in a detailed way. I would say this, if you are highly interested in those details or any one of those details, hey, let's talk about it after the service. Let's have a conversation. I'm not afraid of them. We just can't do it in 40, 42 minutes or whatever it is that we have. So this is how I want to do it. I want to do three textual issues to help you understand Peter's message. And then I want to do four theological issues that will help you suffer well for Christ and to have confidence and peace as you do suffer. Okay, does that sound good? All right, so uh, the first textual issue to help you understand Peter's message is Jesus preaching. All right, verse 19 and 20 says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So I didn't have room to give you all the notes on your page, all right, or else we'd have had five, you know, five pages and, and all of that. So if you, if you can write underneath your little, little sections that I gave you, I want to I give you the three basic options that people give when they talk about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, all right? Now, I must tell you that there are over 100 interpretations. There are over 100. I've boiled them down to, to three basic ones, and I've titled the three basic ones uh, myself. So if you wanted to make three columns, you could say, here are the options of Jesus preaching, all right? People in hell, angels in prison, people on the earth. People in hell, angels in prison, and people on the earth. Right. But there's still the questions like, OK, so who was doing the preaching and to whom was being preached? Where was the preaching going on? When did it happen? What was the content of the message? All right. And so the way I did it on my papers, I just kind of put who, where, when and what on the left hand column. All right. And then I just kind of filled in underneath those three main headings. And so the, the first option is that uh, Jesus uh, preached to people in hell. All right. And so uh, who, who were these people in hell? They were Noah's contemporaries, as the text talks about. All right. They, they, they were the ones who, for 120 years, watched Noah build this, build this ark. And in the midst of Noah building the ark, he preached a message that they rejected. And, and therefore, Jesus goes down into hell and declares to them in the time between his crucifixion and his resurrection that they are doomed forever and that he is victorious forever. And so he's preaching to those people in hell. All right? Now, in, within this view, there are really two main uh, kind of off branches, all right? And the one is Jesus was simply declaring their doom and his victory. The other line of thinking was Jesus was actually proclaiming the gospel. He was preaching the gospel to them. And he was offering them the opportunity to be saved from their sins. Now, one of the problems of many with that kind of take is that if you read through the Bible, you don't really see that kind of thing going or that kind of thing allowed. I mean, Hebrews says that it is appointed for man once to die and after that to face what? Judgment. And so for Jesus to kind of reject or contradict what the Scripture says seems to be unlikely, okay? Now, the second option, this angels in prison option, um, says that Jesus went and preached to fallen angels. Fallen angels. 
or demons, in other words. All right. And where did he do that? He did that in spiritual prison, wherever that may be. Some interpreters say that that spiritual prison is kind of in hell. Others say that it's somewhere out in the air, okay, in the, uh, where the principalities and powers of darkness dwell in some type of prison there, okay? Now, when did Jesus do that? Well, there are two main interpretations under this angels in prison view. The first one is just like I said on the first view, is that between his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus went and preached his victory and their eternal doom uh, then, Others, which is really popular today, actually believe that after his resurrection from the dead and after his ministry to the disciples and his commissioning of them in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, 9 to 11, when Jesus is lifted up into the air, that Jesus went into the air wherever those spirits are and preached his victory at that point before he made it into heaven. That's a very popular view today. So he's preaching to the angels, the fallen angels in prison. The final one, which is the view that I have taken, because it seems to be easily squared with the other passages in Scripture, both in 1 Peter and in the rest of the book, uh, in the rest of the Bible, is the people on the earth view. All right? And let me just give you essentially the interpretation, uh, the interpretive translation of this passage. All right? So. He says uh, in 1 Peter 3, 18, starting in 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The Spirit who went and preached to the spirits who are now in prison. Go back, if you've got your Bibles open, go back and look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time, what's the next phrase? The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Peter is establishing the fact that prophets of old, preachers of old, had the Spirit of Christ. And they wrote down the message of the Spirit of Christ. And most certainly they declared the message of the Spirit of Christ. And so what what I believe is the interpretation here is that Peter is simply saying that the Spirit of Christ that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit of Christ that ministered through Noah in the days of Noah, as he preached a message of the righteousness of God and therefore the need of repentance to come to him and know him in faith. Okay? And so he's not trying to say that Jesus during that time, uh, during this time between crucifixion and resurrection or during the ascension, he's simply making a statement that the same spirit who raised him from the dead is a spirit that also preached the message through Noah. All right. This is not the main point of his text, of his, of his message, but this is what I, I do want. I, I want us to understand some, uh, a, a Bible interpretation principle. And that is the, the, the principle of clarity and the principle of comparison. All right? Whenever the Bible doesn't seem clear, you want to go to other passages that are very clear. 
Because you don't want to build key doctrines off of unclear passages where you don't see support from that anywhere else in the passage. That's where you get the Mormon religion. That's where you get the Jehovah's Witness religion. That's where you get a lot of cults is that you build a doctrine, an entire doctrine on unclear passages, and then you build doctrines on top of that doctrine and doctrines on top of that doctrine where before long you don't even have anything that looks like the gospel. Okay, And so I wanted to go through that with you guys to say that I was trying to compare Scripture with Scripture. If you took look over at 2 Peter, which probably is one page over for you guys, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them in the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a what? Preacher of righteousness. It's the same root word as being preached in our passage today. A preacher of righteousness. So what Peter is telling us is that, is that Peter was a preacher. And the Spirit of Christ was in Peter as he preached the message of God's righteousness and the need for repentance. Okay, so... Uh, you've got my view. If you take another view, that is fine. We are still close friends and can love each other um, very easily. All right. Now, the next two are going to go a lot faster before we get to the theological uh, issues uh, that we really want to look at. And that's the next one is baptism. Baptism. Because um, there are multiple options, multiple interpretations about what Peter's actually saying about baptism here. Let's read that passage that I have uh, bef- below. In which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So really the question is, what is the baptism that he's referring to here? What, what is it? I think there are three options. It's water baptism, it's spirit baptism, or it's the, it's the, um, the reality of what water baptism represents. Those are the three, I think, basic options. And there are good and godly people who take all three different options, okay? Um, for those who say that it's water baptism... Uh, and very strictly so, they often then find themselves believing uh, the baptismal regeneration doctrine. Baptismal regeneration says that you're actually regenerated. You're born again. You're made a new person when you're baptized. Not before then, not until then, and only then. When you go into the water and then come out of the water, you've been made alive, literally. Because if you, if you had not done that, you were still dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, let me ask you, church, and, and man, woman, boy or girl can participate in this, all right? What passages of Scripture would indicate to us that you're not saved during the event of water baptism? Are there any passages in the Bible that would indicate to us? John. That's right. Today you will be with me in paradise. He was not baptized by water, was he? Okay, good example. Chris. That's right. So how, how, how could you possibly have the Holy Spirit if, uh, 
if, if water baptism was necessary and he hadn't been baptized. Two good illustrations. Yes, Jenny. Bam. Bam. That's exactly what Paul told the Philippians jailer. And he didn't say, but you've got to be baptized before that, before that happens. Simply believe. Come, church. Come on now. Yeah, thief on the cross. Absolutely. Today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, no, it, for by grace it is by you by, for by grace you are saved through what? Not of works, lest anyone should That's right. All right. What else? Yes. Absolutely. Good. Wayne, were you going to say something? Yeah. Yeah. Right. He says, come and follow me. And they followed him, right? They followed after him. And nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John does it say, and they, and they got baptized by John the Baptist or Jesus, and they were saved. They followed after Jesus. Good. Paul was excited that he did not baptize any of the Corinthians. Why would anybody be excited about not baptizing if baptizing is what brings salvation? All right? I think I saw one more hand. All right. This is the thing, guys. If we read through the Bible, we're going to see over and over and over again that salvation is by faith in Christ according to grace. So when we read a passage like this, we, we need to check and wait a minute. Hold on a second. Uh, do I really need to, to, to think that this means essentially and only water baptism itself? All right. And so the answer is no. When we compare scripture with scripture and we want to understand clarity, then we need to understand that there, there's something greater going on here. And so um, others believe that, that these, he's talking about spirit baptism. In other words, spirit baptism is when is when the Holy Spirit places you in Christ and Christ in you. It's when you believe. It's when you're born again. It's something that's spiritual that happens. You don't see it with your eyes. Nobody can hear it with their ears, but it's a spiritual reality that happens. I think because Peter talks about Noah and his family being saved through water, and then he turns around and uses baptism, which also involves water, he's basically saying, I'm using a type. I'm using a symbol, the symbol of Noah being saved through water in the ark, and I'm pointing it to another symbol, the symbol of the sacrament or the ordinance of baptism and everything that baptism represents. And that baptism represents the fact that Jesus died physically and rose again uh, physically. You were dead physically and you were made uh, spiritually and you were made alive spiritually. You went through the waters, that is the waters of a dead man, a sinful man, a depraved man, and God delivered you out of that spiritually so that you could walk in newness of life with Him. Romans 6, 3-7. to 
So let me just back, back up and just say this. I'm not denying water baptism here. I'm just saying it's, it's everything that water baptism represents. Okay, That's the view that I take. We also can disagree with that and still be friends. All right, the final issue here is uh, the supremacy of Christ. It says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. We have a temptation to view Jesus as a poor, sorrowful, persecuted man dying on the cross. And I guess one reason why this is close to my mind and my heart is that um, this week Mark Holden and I were talking about putting a cross up here. Um, and he made a place for us to be able to, to do that. And by the way, Mark, thank you for your work and all the other students who who uh, who, who uh, really really helped. Some of the they said some of these rocks are like sixty or seventy pounds. They were trying to hold them up there and moor them up. But but as I was looking, I, I Google imaged um, church crosses. All right, and it was hard to find a cross that did not have Jesus Christ up on it with his hands outstretched and nails between his hands and nails uh, on, on his feet. It was hard to find one. And I will tell you, it, it discouraged my heart because I realized that Jesus is not on the cross. All right? And, and, and even when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, we need to understand that this is not his literal blood and this is not his body being sacrificed yet again and again and again and again. All right. He says in verse 18 that Christ suffered for us once for all. It was done finally. It was done completely. It was done utterly. All right. And so we need to understand that that uh, Jesus is in heaven, not on the earth, that he's on the throne, not in the tomb. He is reigning as sovereign, not suffering as a servant right now. There are multitudes of saints and angels around the throne of God and they are singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And you know what? Every every devil in hell and demon on earth is subjected to the very will of Jesus Christ right now. There is no maverick demon or no maverick devil who gets to do whatever they want with free reign. All right. All powers and dominions and fallen angels have been made subject to Jesus Christ per the authority that God has given to him. All right. So when you and I suffer, when you and I go through a very difficult time and we are wondering where God is or where Jesus Christ is, let's rest in the reality that he is on the throne, that there is, no, there is nothing or anyone who can touch you apart from his will. We can read Job to see that very clearly. And we need to have confidence and rest that our Savior is not just alive, but is reigning sovereign. Now, most of us have not felt and experienced the kind of transcendent exuberation or celebration that we seem to, to, to long for. Like sometimes we'll watch a movie and we'll see it on the movies or we'll go to a, a large sporting event with thousands of people and we'll, like, we'll see the players on the field just celebrating ecstatically, arms raised and they're having this feeling of excitement and oh victory and and conquering in triumph. Or we'll watch a war movie and we'll see these 
these men go into battle and they'll they'll fight and they'll scratch and they'll claw and they'll bleed. But at the end, they're able to triumph with arms raised up and you know, they've got victory. They've got conquering. And we look at that and we just don't experience that. Well, one day you and I will experience it. Because we have a conquering Savior, one who is triumphant above all. And I just want to hold this promise out to you. While sporting events are a lot of fun and having victory in those is great and certainly winning battles, I know, is amazing. There will be nothing like beholding the glory of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ and we will be able to join the multitudes of multitudes and raise our hands in ultimate victory that he has defeated not just our foe in Satan, not just our enemy in the world, but the sin that rested and reigned in our own hearts and that we will be made like him. All right, so let's get to the, uh, the, the four uh, theological truths. We are close to running out of time, but I do want to hit on them at least a little bit for each. The first one is the doctrine of substitution. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. There is a holy curse, a holy curse that hangs over all of humanity. Because of Adam and Eve's fall, God thrust the entire world under the curse of sin. All right? And you and I are not only under that curse, we are participants in that curse. And we are the reasons for it. You realize that when Adam sinned in the garden, it wasn't just merely an independent choice of his, but that in some spiritual way, you and I were with him in the garden, and he was representing us when he did it. We are guilty, all right? And do you realize that the cross... The crucifixion of Jesus is not something that is just done for you, but it's also something that was done by you. Your sin took Christ to the cross. All right? So sin deserves punishment. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. The soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.4 says. All right? And so this is very important. If God decided to look the other way at mine and your sin, God would no longer be righteous. He would not. What, what if he just looked the other way and just let abuse go on? If he just let murderers go free? If he just let other um, heinous crimes go free? What kind of God would God be if he just winked at sin? If he just swept it underneath the proverbial rug? He would be unjust. So that's why in Romans 3.25 it says that God put Christ forward as the propitiation. The word propitiation simply means this. A wrath-satisfying sacrifice. A wrath-satisfying sacrifice. So So that God's justice and His righteousness is not compromised. His his judgment is not thrown out the window, but God puts all of His justice and all of His judgment and all of His righteous wrath upon Jesus Christ. You and I deserved it. We've earned it. We, we, We ought to pay for it. We're the ones who ought to experience it. But instead of us, He puts it on Jesus. 
Therefore, Jesus then can transfer all of his righteousness onto us so that you and I can have eternal life forever and ever. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. All right, we exchange our filthiness for Christ's righteousness. And Christ exchanged his righteousness for our filthiness. This is the doctrine of substitution. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. The second one is the doctrine of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a relationship of peace. That's what it is. It's a relationship of peace. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. I think think that one of the, the greatest dangers in a church like ours and in a church network like ours is that we have hardly ever seen ourselves as enemies of God. I think we see ourselves as sinners, but we don't see ourselves as enemies. And I think Paul would even say, I'm not saying you're as bad as you possibly could have been. I'm not saying that you were the worst, wretched, possible individual that ever existed on the planet. But what I am saying is that in your mind and in your heart, you were insubordinate to God's laws. You were unconcerned with His holiness. And you were independent in your thinking. And because of that, you made yourself an enemy of God. Because God has created you to worship Him, to love Him, to submit to Him, and to to walk in fellowship with Him. All right? And so, salvation is not just good news that we get a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not the great news of salvation. I would even say this, all right? That salvation is not real good news unless if all it does is get you out of hell. What Peter is trying to tell us is that he is bringing us in reconciliation all the way to God. John Piper says it the best. He says that God is the gospel. So so you and I need to no longer look at salvation as if it's just a ticket that keeps us from suffering, but rather a way that gets us into intimacy with God, relationship with God, delight in God, a vision of His glory, a sharing in His holiness. We need to catch that vision. And I would even say this, that if if your vision of salvation is shorter than that, if, if it doesn't reach all the way up to knowing God as J.I. Packer wrote about in his book, then you don't really have the fullness of salvation. And you don't have a vision for why God has made you. But Jesus died on the cross once for sins. It doesn't say to get us out of hell, but to get us fully to God in a reconciled relationship with Him. You were made to experience a full and eternal relationship with God. And Jesus' death accomplished that for you. Resurrection. It says being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Um, I, just, I just want to um, make the point that the resurrection is absolutely critical to the, to the gospel and to mine and your hope for eternal life. All right, because we have a tendency and a temptation to just talk about the death. But, but this text 
And the purpose and the point of this text hinges on the doctrine of the resurrection. Because Peter is essentially saying, not only did Jesus die for you, but he showed his victory over death and over hell and over demons and over the devil and all of their semi-conquering power by being raised from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he is a conquering, triumphant, glorious king who rules and reigns over all. And I'll see the resurrection proves that Jesus' death met the requirement that God required. You know, one time, I remember, I, I remember uh, in a class a uh, number of years ago, and we asked the question, why is the resurrection necessary? And you know what? In, at that time, we really didn't have a great answer. But I can tell you today that one reason that the resurrection is necessary is that it is full proof. It is evidence that God looked at the cross and he says, I am well pleased. That is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice right there. I'm putting my stamp of approval by raising him from the dead and showing the whole world that I am satisfied. The final thing is salvation, because that's what um, Peter is talking about. All of these things come to salvation. He says, once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There's also an antitype, which now saves us baptism not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward god through the resurrection of jesus christ and so peter would say exactly what paul has said exactly what luke and the other gospel writers would say is that salvation is the most glorious thing possibly imaginable because it is deliverance from the power of sin the pollution of sin, and the penalty of sin. And it transfers you over into the power of Christ, into the purity of Christ, and the promise of eternal life with Christ. And this is what Peter is getting us to. It is a triumphant message that we are saved by the powerful work of a crucified, risen, ascended, exalted Savior who is one day going to return and we are going to reign and be able to be in conquering glory with him. Amen? So, I asked the question. You can look down at your notes, the outline that I've provided. I asked the question, do you realize that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering and dying because of their faith in Christ? I don't know if any of you read foxnews.com, but I happened to look at it. I think it was... Uh, uh, Thursday or Friday, and the title of the article is Christians Killed for Faith Nearly Doubled in 2013. Reverend Faye Pamamusa knew immediately why suspected Boko Haram militants burst into his home last year as his wife prepared dinner in the family's northeastern Nigeria home. His stance against Christian persecution in the divided African nation had long made him a target. Musa, who served as the general overseer of the Rama Assembly International Church and secretary of the Christian Association of Nigeria, better known as CAN, saw the intruders near the front door of his home as his wife, Mercy, prepped the food. One of the couple's daughters, Zion, had spotted the armed men just seconds earlier jumping a fence. 
quote, Today you are a dead man. One of the gunmen reported, said on May 14th as he dragged Musa to the porch, Call your Jesus to help you, Mr. Can Man. Zion Musa then begged the attackers to spare her father. A request met with a misfired bullet that caused her to faint. She survived, but her 52-year-old father did not. Musa was one of 2,123 Christians killed last year because of their faith. I did the math. That's 5.8 Christians who died every day in the year 2013. If you think about it in this way, y'all, if it was our church, it would take us less than three weeks to all be dead at that clip. And so the article goes on to talk about North Korea and how uh, an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians live in concentration camps, prisons, and prison-like circumstances under the regime of Kim Jong-un. There are 300,000 Christians supposedly in North Korea, and it's the most dangerous country worldwide for Christians to live in. And then uh, Somalia is ranked in uh, the top 10 of the hardest places to live as a Christian. It says, in Somalia, a Christian cannot trust anyone. One false confidence, and you literally lose your head. Syria made the top 10 this year as well. And uh, the influence of groups that are linked to Al-Qaeda and other extremist factions has risen considerably in the year 2013. It goes on to list some statistics. I was really sobered by the reality uh, that happened in 2013. And so I want you to see the question that I ask. What motivates a person to maintain a Christian testimony if it means he may spend life in prison or even be killed? Or worse yet, his family killed as this man had to look like he was going to face. Guys, the answer is simple but profound. It's the very doctrines that we just talked about. It is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is the fact that Jesus Christ has brought us all the way to God and that we know Him. It is the fact of the powerful resurrection that just as Jesus rose from the dead physically, you and I have been res- resurrected from the dead spiritually. All right? It is the reality that we have salvation, that we have been delivered from sin, and we have be- been delivered and transferred over to righteousness and eternal life forever and ever. Listen, listen. The worst thing that can possibly happen to us is that people would kill us for our faith. But if we believe what Paul said, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why we're willing to suffer. That's why we're willing to name the name of Christ no matter what anybody threatens us, no matter, no, no matter where they put us or even what they do to us. And so look at the two principles. Your willingness to suffer for Christ's glory is rooted in Christ's willingness to suffer death for your salvation. That man, Mr. Musa, no doubt knew that. He was not going to deny Christ because he knew Christ would not deny him and did not deny him on the cross. And then the second one is, just as Christ was raised after he suffered, so shall you be raised after your suffering. And so, when you're suffering, remember two things. 
the suffering of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. His suffering and His humility will motivate you to do the same. And His glorious resurrection and ascension and His now, his now um, power and sovereignty overall will give you confidence and courage to endure whatever it is that you have to do endure for His sake. Amen?